Welcome to episode 213 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're just off the RSA week. Uh, most of the people on the uh, uh, program were there, and we'll get little vignettes uh, from each of them. Uh, uh, Maury Shank, who did not wisely go to RSA, uh, is uh, a former managing partner in Steptoe's uh, London office, uh, now doing technology, uh, European technology and cybersecurity, investing and advice, uh, uh, legal and otherwise. Uh, uh, Maury, good to have you. It's good to be here, Stuart. Uh, and uh, we would like user uh, listener feedback. Uh, we're starting to do this on Skype instead of on the phone. So if uh, people sound better or worse, we'd like to hear about it. Uh, uh, also here is Jim Lewis, uh, Senior Vice President for the S- uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies and the uh, uh, the founding father for think tanks in cybersecurity. And not a lawyer. And not a lawyer. That's <laughs> right. Uh, every time I say we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, I think uh, you know something about all of those things, but you are not a lawyer. That's and, true. And, and, and I flinch. Uh, and, and I always thank God that uh, you're here. Uh, also, Paul Rosenzweig, who is a lawyer and uh, founder of Red Branch Consulting and formerly uh, my deputy in government at DHS. Uh, Paul, good to have you on. Great to be here, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker. Uh, I had somebody advise me that they know that I'm I'm holding the record for returning to Steptoe and Johnson more times than any <laughs> other lawyer, and I should stop saying it. So for those who made that request, there you go. Um, uh, okay, RSA, uh, massive, uh, you know, basically when RSA picks the date for its uh, uh, conference, you need to get on Airbnb right away and get yourself a place because the, the town is full of cybersecurity types. Um, and uh, everybody but Maury was there. So I thought I'd uh, uh, ask um, uh, each of you uh, to talk a little bit about uh, uh, what you said at RSA or what somebody else said that you thought was more important than what you said. Uh, so, uh, uh, Paul, why don't I ask you to kick this off? Sure. Uh, it, it was fun. Uh, I was there. On a panel with Jim Lewis uh, uh, on uh, the development of cyber norms of behavior, and uh, we kind of began by thinking that there was actually a little movement that people were increasingly trying to uh, lay down uh, markers, if not red lines, about what was or was not acceptable behavior. Um, uh, most notably, the United States government has gotten into the business of attribution uh, far more aggressively than it has in the past. Uh, and uh, for, me, for me, one of the insights that I took away uh, was something that came out in our discussions was that private sector actors are also uh, increasingly becoming uh, pseudo-arms of the state in the attribution game. That is to say that Kaspersky is, uh, is involved in identifying U.S. Uh, government actions overseas, and likewise, American companies like CrowdStrike and, and FireEye are becoming quasi uh, arms of the government in their private uh, activities, uh, or they're at least consciously paralleling, paralleling U.S. government uh, desires. Uh, one of the things that I speculated about, which after the 
after the panel, a couple of people told me wasn't really so speculative, is that increasingly as private sector actors become tools of government activity, they will also become objects of government retaliation, which has to be scary if you're somebody at CrowdStrike and you think that the Russians actually poison people that they don't like. That has to change your own model of behavior as well somewhat. So that was one of my insights as well. I'll give you the second one, and we'll probably get back to this when we talk about privacy and Mori, but absolutely nobody in America is ready for the general data protection regulation that comes into effect next month. They say they are, but the other panel I was on made it painfully clear that there are still many more questions than there are answers. Well, that's not so much the fault of the private sector. It's the fault of the people who drafted GDPR and are hyping it. Yes. I agree with you on that, and I agree with you on the other. It sort of puts Kaspersky's fate in perspective. At least he doesn't have to worry about foreign substances on doorknobs when he opens doors. As long as he behaves. I should get a word. GDPR is tough, but it's not as bad as some of the scaremongers are making it out to be. We're advising a lot of companies on this, and there are practical ways to deal with it. So I'll get in my pitch that if you've got questions, give us a call. I think that's right. Ask Maury. Don't ask the Article 29 Working Party, which is in the business of setting unrealistic standards, even if they aren't going to enforce them. All right. I talked to – I was on a hackback panel because I'm typecast that way. I thought it was because they couldn't find anybody who was favorably disposed toward any form of hacking back, any form of activity outside of your own network to protect yourself. But in fact, everybody on the panel was generally favorably disposed toward not applying the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in an aggressive and strict fashion. And I found that particularly interesting because one of the people on the panel, Angelos Karamaitis, is at DARPA and is funding responses to DDoS attacks by bots that I think you could probably describe as acts outside of your network in order to protect yourself. And so we're now starting to see the development of products that will make it very tempting to get out of your network. And since there is no obvious way to deal with DDoS by vast bot armies other than that, I think that's – a useful development. Uh, true also the audience, not all, usually I get, uh, you know, when did you um, stop lynching uh, 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 people uh, questions. Uh, most of the, the, the folks in the audience were moderately favorable toward the idea that uh, our current application of the CFAA doesn't work. So that was, that was my takeaway from at least my panel. Uh, Jim, I, I'm going to ask you about two things because um, I know you have views on at least one of them. Uh, uh, first, Kirsten Nielsen, the secretary of DHS, gave a speech. Jay Johnson had given, who's the uh, past uh, secretary of DHS, gave a speech on uh, both on cybersecurity. Um, 
what did you think was different about uh, Kirsten's speech versus uh, Jay Johnson's? And I should note that the panels I went to, people were a little more positive on uh, GDPR. Uh, even they have that aged cryptographers panel, mm-hmm. you know, that they do every year, and even they were taking up GPR, GPDR, GDPR, and a little more positive. Nielsen's speech was uh, pretty good. There were a couple things that are worth noting. Uh, first, um, if if people haven't figured this out, the the new uh, the new black in cyber is you have to impose consequences on bad actors, and I think that's right. No one's going to change if there's no penalty. Um, and a defensive strategy is always going to be inadequate. Um, so she talked about consequences. She only said the word Russia once, and so that's going to be a dilemma. Because what do you do, uh, what do you do to impose consequences if you can't impose them on Russia? And the answer to that is suffer. The other thing she brought up was she went through all the things the administration is doing to protect the upcoming elections. They're working with state and local governments. They're, uh, they're talking about what they might do to prevent foreign intervention. And then the only thing she said in the whole presentation that got a laugh was she said, and we're working against uh, the rampant voter fraud, uh, which no one no one else had particularly noticed. But she said it, and there was some laughter. But other than that, the speech was well-received. And uh, uh, nobody walked out? Um, no, if you compare it to some of the uh, – so one of the nice things about RSA is if you sit in the back, you can count the, the hordes as they depart. And um, some speakers who shall remain nameless, uh, it was like more people were going out than coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not the case for her. Okay. Uh, she did not uh, take a position when asked uh, on whether we were ready for uh, uh, our election security, uh, but also on Brad Smith's digital Geneva Convention, uh, a, a kind of offshoot of which um, produced the Cyber Tech Accord or whatever it was, uh, uh, which was a set of principles that uh, uh, tech companies in, uh, uh, in Silicon Valley were supposed to sign up to, and a number of them did. Um, and it's uh, it's a kind of softer version of the Digital Geneva Convention. It essentially, says. We're going to protect all our customers from cyber attacks. We're not going to help governments launch cyber attacks against innocent citizens. Uh, that innocent, I think, crept in uh, at the last minute. Um, we're going to empower users to strengthen cybersecurity uh, uh, protection. And we're going to partner with each other and encourage global information sharing. This is really leaning against the idea that uh, – um, actually that Paul introduced earlier, that there are um, national players and national uh, champions in cybersecurity, and we ought to get used to it. You know, I think that they would tell you it's more of a complementary uh, effort to reinforce the, the Geneva Convention idea, which wasn't met with uh, overwhelming acclaim uh, from states. Uh, Geneva Conventions are hard to get. Usually you have to have a big war. Um, in this case, I think that it's actually a good idea. I think that the tech accord is more likely to get some traction. Uh, it will reinforce Geneva. So I was a little more positive on it. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, to each uh, from each according to their abilities, uh, to each according to their needs. And this uh, 
there's some, I forget who said that, but whoever it was, I think he's put his finger on it. Well, let's, let's, let's hope he doesn't come back in, in general, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I continue to think that the whole digital Geneva Convention thing is a, a, a remarkable mashup of extreme naivete and extreme cynicism, uh, in which, uh, Microsoft says, you know what would be good for our business? Let's all make that international law. Uh, and, and I, I, I think that's pretty unlikely. Yeah. But, but one of the critiques of it was, um, you know, why don't you guys clean up your own act before telling states what to do? And I think the, 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 whatever it is, the agreement is a step towards doing. Well, it, it'll be interesting. One of the questions is going to be, think, uh, if you make all these promises, uh, and then don't live up to them, um, uh, can the FTC come and hammer you? Because <laughs> uh, I think these these look like enforceable promises uh, to me. Uh, and I, I, I'm waiting for Kaspersky to sign up to this. Uh, they may, uh, but they may regret it if they do. Okay, uh, let's move on. And, and for the, the listeners, uh, in five minutes, we saved you $2,000 and a week of your time. Uh, uh, no need to go to RSA. We'll give you the highlights right here. Um, this is something that broke at the beginning of last uh, week, but I think it's a big deal. And that's the ZTE punishment that the Commerce Department handed down. Essentially, uh, ZTE had been selling a bunch of stuff to uh, proscribed countries, uh, most obviously Iran, and uh, pulling in a whole bunch of U.S. equipment and then uh, transshipping it to Iran so that they could uh, provide a, um, a complete set of services. Uh, uh, they got caught. They swore they would never do it again. They uh, promised that if they... Uh, violated the agreement, they could lose their right to buy U.S. equipment for seven years. And then uh, they told the U.S. government, according to the Commerce Department, that they were punishing the people who had come up with this scheme for uh, transshipping stuff uh, and then, in fact, gave them all bonuses. Uh, so uh, the Commerce Department, when they found out about that, was just ripped uh, and has now said, okay, you agreed to a seven-year no-U.S. equipment uh, uh, deal. That's the deal you're going to get. And uh, um, this is a staggering blow, I think, to uh, uh, to ZTE uh, and maybe to a bunch of U.S. companies that uh, have ZTE as a big customer. Um, it's going to create problems for Google, which has to decide whether they – provide uh, 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 Google Play uh, the services to ZTE's Android phones. Uh, and if they don't, uh, nobody outside of China will probably buy them. Uh, so it's a very big deal. Jim, what do you think? You know, it's it's you don't need to be a lawyer to say that uh, your, your defense counsel would uh, probably warn you not to lie to the investigators. So, you know, in some ways they – are getting uh, what they deserve, shouldn't do that. On the other hand, this is a, a long-standing tradition in U.S. export control policy to take actions that help build foreign competitors. So it's not like ZTE is going to go out of business. Um, what they'll do is they'll look for someone else who they can buy from. And, you know, that's why fines are so much more fun because it doesn't necessarily – encourage a Samsung or some other company to enter the market and take the place of 
the U.S. firm. So all for punishing them. Um, this was probably a little uh, a little backhanded. I I do think that that's a big risk that this is going to be interpreted in Beijing as all part of the war on China's high-tech ambitions. Mm. Uh, uh, and they might have done this anyway, but they will be particularly enthusiastic about making sure that they've de- developed a national champion uh, in every industry that ZTE needs to succeed. Now, that turns out to be a lot. You've got optical stuff, uh, uh, routers, which uh, they, they already uh, produce, uh, and, a ver- and uh, uh, communications chips, which means that Qualcomm could suffer, uh, and... Uh, the software that you use to run uh, mobile uh, uh, phones. Uh, so we're going to see a concerted push. Uh, you know, maybe ZTE doesn't deserve to be bailed out, but I don't think that's how, how China's going to see it. No, and uh, one of the questions I have is, will ZTE buy from Huawei, right? Because they're competitors, but I bet you Huawei will, will sell Samsung might sell. There's some Japanese companies in the market. So it's not like we have a monopoly on this stuff. Ours is better, and you have to redo all your supply relationships. But um, a year from now, six months from now, uh, ZTE will be uh, what they used to call ITAR-free, uh, no U.S. parts. Right. And this is, of course, what happened in the uh, satellite industry. Yeah. Uh, and on the whole, it didn't work out very well for U.S. industry. If your goal is to reduce market share for U.S. companies, we're on the right path. Oh, terrific. Uh, well, I, you know, look, we are, we are marching into a fight without quite understanding how big that fight's going to be. Uh, and, and my guess is that uh, uh, the Chinese are going to double down on their industrial policy uh, as a way of making sure we can never do this kind of thing again, whether it's with uh, um, uh, tariffs or investment restrictions or uh, uh, export control uh, uh, punishments. It is a two-way street, and we needed to have this fight with the Chinese every year it got harder. We probably should have done this five years ago. But you need to push back on their lack of reciprocity. And they still are dependent both on U.S. markets and U.S. technology. So we're not without leverage here, but it will be a tough fight. Yeah, but we're going to have to approach it as a um, as a whole uh, and mm. negotiate uh, over it. Uh, oh, so you mean have a strategy. Yes. Gosh, that you're you're, you're so good. demanding. <laughs> I mean, jeepers. And a process to come up with a strategy. I think that's setting the bar way too high. Okay. Uh, well, it's certainly, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, certainly history would so suggest. Uh, um, Telegram uh, is having trouble in Russia, and for once, the U.S. is not involved. Telegram is a um, uh, formed by a Russian uh, expat uh, who lives in Berlin, I believe, uh, uh, and who refused, uh, as a matter of principle, to give uh, encryption keys to the Russian government. Uh, thinking everybody in Russia uses Telegram, uh, I think I can ride this out better than Putin can. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, how's that working out? It's creating a lot of problems. Uh, F, uh, the Russian government, including security authorities like the FSB, was apparently a big user, and they're going to have to switch to other means of communicating. They've also, th- this thing is set up in a way that it's not easy to block, so they're bl- blocking broad swathes of IP addresses believed to be associated with Telegram, but it's having a lot of collateral damage of people, innocent users of those IP addresses who are not able to access the Internet. So it's a a rather a mess, and 
you know, the obvious thing is for people to switch to things like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. And the question is, will those be next? And if the Russians try to block those, how much damage will that do? Yeah, so I it, no, I, I agree with you that it's doing a lot of damage, uh, but it's doing damage to uh, AWS and Google who are getting their uh, sites blocked. Uh, uh, and uh, Paul and I talked about whether we should talk about domain fronting, and uh, uh, Paul said, you know, I'm not sure that's as important as some of these other stories. But domain fronting, which is the prospect, uh, the the practice of allowing people to go to Google.com and then forward all the traffic someplace else is at the heart of this problem for uh, uh, for Telegram and for the uh, Russian government. Telegram has basically said you can send your Telegram messages through Google, through AWS, and we have set up a mechanism by which uh, uh, we can hop from one domain to the next and they'll, the Russian government's going to have trouble catching up with us. Uh, uh, but domain fronting, uh, once governments start uh, uh, disciplining it, uh, can be a real problem for the people who are allowing it. And I see Google has said, you know, we never intended that to be a feature of uh, our our product uh, offering, and so we are actually eliminating it from our uh, uh, our services. Uh, and I wonder whether other companies who up to now haven't paid a price for doing allowing domain fronting are going to start paying a price and following Google's lead. This is just one alternative architecture. I mean, it, it may be a big uh, a big way that Telegram makes itself harder to block or that Google allows traffic to move through them. But the Internet is a very flexible place. And I'm not sure that authorities in Russia or elsewhere, you know, in the United States that may want to get access to messages, for example, will be able to uh, keep up with the different ways that these apps can transmit messages. Could be, could be, but I, you know, I, I have to say, you know, domain fronting and the end of domain fronting is being covered in the U.S. press to the extent it's being covered as, uh, oh, shocking de- uh, decline in uh, civil liberties online because of a failure to support all these uh, innocent uh, uh, dissenters who are using these services. But, you know, it's just like Tor. When you actually look at who's using it, it's going to turn out that 90% of the use or more is for criminal purposes. They want the anonymity. They, you know, when you're exfiltrating data from somebody, uh, somebody's network, you send it to Google because that looks like innocent traffic, uh, and then you domain front it uh, and send it someplace else. Uh, so there's a lot of good law enforcement and security reasons not to encourage domain fronting, and we're letting this the sort of poster child approach, oh, gee, won't it be bad for innocent dissenters to drive a policy that is mainly good for crooks? Okay, I, uh, why don't we talk, uh, while we're uh, while I'm doing these rants, let's talk about the Who is database. Uh, another thing where uh, uh, sentimentality and uh, uh, privacy concerns is really bad for security. Uh, uh, Paul, you covered this, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the Who is database is maintained by ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, as part of its operation of the domain name system. It's it's basically a lookup function to see who owns a particular uh, uh, domain name. Now, 
to be sure, the database itself is uh, is rife with error. It's had long-standing problems of completeness and accuracy, but it is fundamentally an important tool for identifying who is who on the network. Um, it turns out that despite uh, two years of uh, warning, uh, ICANN has not figured out how to make the who is database or the and uh, compliant with uh, the new general data protection regulation. There it is again, and yet another one of those unintended consequences. And that is driving people crazy. Uh, some of the registrars have said that they're going to take their entire who is database offline because they think that maintaining it uh, without uh, the adequacy and certifications that are required under GDPR will subject them to um, uh, penalties. Uh, many in the law enforcement uh, area, uh, exemplified in a post that Brian Krebs wrote and in another one that Rob Joyce wrote uh, before he stepped down from the, from, the, from the cyber czar office in the White House, uh, think that losing access to the WHOIS database at a systematic level is going to greatly embolden the criminals and mali other malicious users and make it much, much harder for law enforcement and intelligence communities to track malicious conduct on the web. So, um, you know, there's more in the details that we could get into, including the brewing fight between the Department of Commerce and ICANN over this issue, and which GoDaddy looks middle um, uh, to their great win. Uh, that we can talk about, but is that uh, despite you know two years of warning and no uh, uh, no real uh, plan has been developed for how to reconcile these two things, and and the last I heard, the ICANN CEO is is flying on an emergency visit to meet with the Article 29 working parties to ask them to give him a one-year moratorium and pass so he can figure out what to do. Um, likelihood of success of that. Pretty darn close to zero. So I, I I think you're right. The WHOIS database is full of lies, but it turns out that uh, the liar's imagination is not that good, and so they keep repeating the same lies, and you can start to catch them uh, uh, by the repetition of the fake credentials that they uh, uh, provide. Uh, uh, and if you had any doubt that privacy uh, campaigners actually – don't care about your security at all. Uh, this should uh, uh, put the icing on that. Uh, this is a privacy measure that will be bad for security and therefore bad for privacy, but the privacy zealots don't care. Uh, they want the principle, not actual security or privacy. Uh, um, we've we've yeah. talked about this before, though. All the structures that were inherited from the golden age of the dawn of the Internet don't work anymore. This kind of ad hoc non-governmental, you know, people are pushing back and states are pushing back and we're going to see a bumpy period of some number of years while people move away from who is to some better replacement, one that might have a little more liability or responsibility. I, I, Just one I, of many. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you and I think that the Obama administration, NTIA officials who decided, oh, we don't need any leverage over ICANN. We should give up this last vestige of control. Oh, Ted Cruz, an apology, which he will never get from them. 
I, uh, Ted Cruz ob- objected to the transfer and tried to stop it, and uh, uh, he was poo-pooed and mocked and uh, dismissed. Uh, uh, but well, if well, we okay. still had that, <laughs> well, yeah. if, if we still had that, we would be saying, um, you know, you you could have consequences for failing to uh, um, abide by GDPR, and you could have consequences for, for failing to uh, abide by our directive that who is stay up. So uh, we lost that leverage, and we gave it up uh, in the interest of um, a soft-hearted, soft-headed uh, internationalism, and this and, is what we're getting. And they can use the theme from the Titanic, because it's like you're the captain, and you say, pay no attention to that big white thing out there. We're just doing fine. And <laughs> here we are. Okay. Um, so um, the EU um, seems to have followed up, or at least uh, uh, maybe it's just coincidence, but it did something that looks a lot like the Cloud Act that just got passed to moot the uh, uh, Microsoft Supreme Court case. Um, uh, Maury, what is this EU move and what does it mean for the future? Well, it's sort of, it's the Cloud Act Plus, but it hasn't happened yet. It's the European Commission has proposed a director of, uh, sorry, a regulation on the European preservation order and European production order. So in, in 2014, there was a directive on the European investigation order, which said EU member state courts can ask courts and other EU member states to implement evidence collection orders. This new one's a regulation. It's directly applicable cross-border, and it says that EU member state uh, courts can gather evidence directly in other EU member states or require preservation of evidence from communications and certain other hosting service providers and and similar entities. Uh, Again, this is a proposal, Um, and it's it's like the Cloud Act in that it applies to where uh, the location of the service provider. Um, but the data can be stored anywhere, including outside the EU. And it also requires foreign service providers to have a representative. It would require foreign service providers to have a representative in the EU, a lot like GDPR does. So this is a, this is potentially a, a total transformation of the way people thought that uh, production of electronic evidence across borders was supposed to work. Uh, uh, if the U.S. with the Cloud Act and the Europeans with this regulation decide that they don't care where it is, the question is, do they have jurisdiction over you? Uh, um, we could see a lot of companies being forced to cough up data that up to now they've been withholding out of principle. Yep, absolutely. And um you know, there's conflict of laws issues, and the Cloud Act provides some protection for that, but only where um, only where there's a treaty in place and certain other requirements are met. And I I haven't dove into this detail the details of the new European regulation, but I'm sure the same problems are going to come up there. So I think it will be interesting. The the U.S. Cloud Act assumes there's going to be a pretty careful negotiation over what all of the protections are going to be for privacy uh, uh, and uh, uh, the rights of the accused, uh, um, and that they won't allow companies to provide this information across the border until that's in place. Sounds like a recipe for maybe getting six countries into that uh, arrangement. The EU seems to think we're just going to order it, and and the companies are going to do it because we say so. Is that really what this says? Well, it. It's possible. I, I think that will be, you know, at the moment, it seems to just say you've got to provide the data if you have control over it. 
That's also what the Cloud Act says if there's not a treaty. Uh, you've only service providers only have that defense if they've decided to store stuff in a country with a treaty. Okay, yes, you're right. Okay. So we could just uh, – everybody uh, does a dive for the bottom uh, and says uh, uh, we're just going to say we have jurisdiction over you, cough it up. And jurisdiction over you could be pretty modest, right? Uh, you did a little bit of business here. Uh, you sold some ads here. Uh, you, you don't have to have collected the data um, and stored it uh, anywhere near or being offering the service even as a direct uh, service to uh, – like Germany, uh, if they've got jurisdiction over you, they can say, uh, um, we think you have data, cough it up. Well, it, it, it's not a license for a global fishing expedition. I mean, some EU member states, EU member states can already grant this authority and the UK has, um, to some extent, but there has to be a nexus to the, of the particular investigation to the EU or to the, you know, the country where it's being where the order is being sought. Well, we got we got a ways. This will this will sort itself out. The EU's uh, substitute for democracy is uh, uh, delay, um, and so there'll be a long process in which uh, everybody gets to uh, complain about this, uh, and then it will be implemented. And so we'll get to see what what changes are made in response to those complaints. And we'll disagree about it on the cyber. I, 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 I certainly hope so. <laughs> right. uh, okay, last uh, topic just about, I think, uh, is it looks as though the SWIFT hacks are starting to get the, the fallout from those big SWIFT hacks were tens of millions of dollars were uh, extricated uh, and up to a billion almost uh, almost uh, uh, extricated from uh, banks using the swift network that companies are starting to um settle those with the, uh, uh, the, the the company whose account was debited and the uh, uh, folks who were acting on the strength of fake orders that were sent to them uh, uh, are starting to settle. We don't know what the terms are, uh, if, if I remember, Paul, uh, but Ecuador, the Ecuadorian bank and Wells Fargo have apparently reached a settlement and Bangladesh is sort of looking at um, doing the same. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Stuart. This is Paul. Yep. So what does this mean, and, and do you have any idea what the um, emerging uh, technology or uh, uh, legal framework is going to be? Well, I think what it means, or most obviously, is that uh, increasingly provide, service providers like the banks here are coming to have essentially third-party liability for their cybersecurity failures. Now, in the past, they've mostly managed to avoid that. Um, there are cases from you know, the last decade in which banks have, have won judgments essentially saying, you know, we told you that online banking was a risk. You signed a contract. Um, you know, uh, you take the risk, you lose. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is starting to reflect a sea change as... Uh, the scope of what is commercially reasonable uh, starts to get a little more teeth in it, and uh, banks, and I predict in the end other uh, service providers, at least at the high end, are going to be, come to be expected to do a better job of avoiding uh, being the victims of fraud or being the victims of security breaches that could have been ameliorated with you know, relatively simple technology 
uh, you know, when, when these SWIFT uh, events occurred, they didn't even have uh, the, the banking equivalent of two-factor authentication in place to, to assure the identity of the people con, con doing the orders. So the fact that the banks are getting liable uh, for the errors, and, and again, we don't know how liable, but I'm sure they paid some money, uh, means that they're going to start making greater demands, and that's going to drive uh, SWIFT, which has been notoriously uh, slow in, in adopting technological change, uh, to certainly increase the pace at which it brings in new potential security measures. It's going to be fun to watch. It, it is, and I gather that, that the the basic standard here from the Universal Commercial Code is uh, the, the loss falls uh, uh, on the bank only if the bank did not have commercially reasonable security measures in place. Uh, and so that's the, the, the question, uh, just how commercially reasonable uh, are the bank's security measures? Uh, and uh, uh, that language is going to drive a lot. I'm kind of surprised that it's – well, I guess I'm not surprised that it would drive a dispute between Ecuador and uh, – the um, uh, and Wells Fargo, I'd be a little more surprised if it drove a dispute between uh, um, uh, Bangladesh and I think a bank in the Philippines, but maybe it will. Well, you can't tell. Uh, I suspect that you're right that uh, that that may turn on Filipino or Bangladeshi law, but uh, uh, we'll see. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. Where else are they going to look? Yeah, so for those who are hoping that uh, liability will improve cybersecurity, this is going to turn out to be a, a test case. All right, the very last item that uh, I wanted to mention, just because it's a taste of the future uh, where cutting-edge technology is not being developed in the United States but in China, uh, a, a, a guy who was the subject of a, a dis- commercial uh, and I think criminal dispute uh, went to a concert with 60,000 other fans. Uh, the cops had uh, uh, cameras uh, on the entrances uh, with facial recognition on it. They identified him as he entered and uh, found him uh, in the audience as well and busted him right there. Uh, so uh, scanning through 60,000 faces and finding a few people that you really want to identify is now part of the standard criminal tools available uh, to authorities in China, and uh, eventually they'll sell that equipment to uh, um, the NFL and a variety of other uh, uh, investigative agencies here in the United States. Uh, um, I'm willing to bet that anybody in uh, Silicon Valley could have built this uh, within the last three years and that none of them did it because um, lefty politics. Um so, uh, so instead we'll buy it from the Chinese. All right. Thank you to Maury Shank. Thank you to Jim Lewis. Thank you to Paul Rosenzweig. This has been episode 213 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we are looking for a part-time intern, uh, uh, to uh, work on podcast issues in our Washington DC office. If you're interested, go to the website, uh, steptoe.com slash careers and you'll see the announcement and, uh, how to apply. Uh, we'd love to have you uh, 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 
especially a, um, a fan working on the uh, podcast. Uh, and if you've got a guest interview to suggest, uh, send us uh, uh, the name, and if they come on the show, we'll put we'll provide you with one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw podcast mugs. Uh, got to do a little bit of research. Better check before you suggest somebody uh, to see if they've already been on the show because we've we've uh, been fishing in this pool a while, and you may be suggesting somebody we've already had on. Uh, not that we wouldn't want to bring them back. Uh, uh, so uh, coming up, we're uh, hoping to have um, uh, Megan Stiffel, uh, uh, who's the Cybersecurity Policy Director for Public Knowledge. Uh, Kirsten Nielsen uh, is uh, we're in negotiations uh, I, uh, to get her on. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask Jim for all the hard questions that um, uh, she refused to answer. See if we can get her to answer them uh, this time. Uh, I, and uh, we hope that the audience will join us as we once again, in those episodes and others, provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 